Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. We are joined by Thomas Trentman, CFA, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Jack Meyer, CFA, Senior Manager, Portfolio Specialist of Sands Capital Management, LLC, a sub-advisor of Touchstone Securities, Inc. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, I'm Kurt Dupuy. How are you, man? I'm doing great. This is, um, you know, we typically record on a Friday. This happens to be a Friday, so kind of the end of a long week, sun shining, feeling good about life. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. Everything's been really good. New new No Gallagher song out for those who don't and aren't listening to Noel. That's like my favorite person ever. He was the old lead songwriter for Oasis. So look up that new No Gallagher song. It's just, mm, it's epic. Do you like Oasis, Kurt? Have we had this conversation? Uh, we, we've had this. Um, um, I'll talk about this more in the Costanza Corner. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm nowhere near the fan you are. But yes. Oh, man, he's doing good work on his solo stuff. Anyways, I don't know how we got down this path, but I took us there. Aren't I the one that sent you that that link to this Oasis cover band here in Atlanta called Bro Oasis? Oh, you did. You're right. That's Come right. On, I, I, I know That's you. right. See, I, my, sometimes I have the memory of a goldfish. I swear, man, it's crazy. So on a completely different, let's <laughs> completely different turn. Let's talk about the episode. We are, you know, beyond thrilled to have Sands Capital on the podcast this week. This episode, a couple of things I want to say up front about it. One, you know, this is not a podcast about investments. We're not looking to do the typical, hey, let's go talk about our wholesalers about how they do what they do. That's not what this is. Uh, we're looking to ask some very specific questions that are on the mind of our audience lately or that we find to be on the mind of our audience lately. Specifically, Sands Capital runs three portfolios for us, all growth equity. They run domestic large growth called Sands Select Growth. Uh, And then we have two international portfolios uh, as well in emerging markets and uh, in an international developed and, you know, the th- let's talk about the things, you know, the things that have been on your mind, the focus of this episode. We have Tom Trentman on, who is um, very longtime senior portfolio manager for the Select Growth Portfolio Domestic. And what we wanted to ask Tom about was, how do we even think about growth at this point? You know, depending on what you're listening, when you're listening to this, we're recording this in early 2023, you know, growth had a nice rally, but boy, it's been you know, if we think about and we look back, you know, the past 10, 15 years, it's been a roller coaster. It's like growth is the only thing that works. Growth, growth, growth. Then uh, interest rates pop a little bit, and all of a sudden we're on this roller coaster. And so it, it, it's just been since 08, and we, you know, this boom bust cycle in growth equities. And, and uh, so we want to ask him about that, like how to actually think about that particular space. And then the second part of the interview gets into emerging markets, um, and we had Jack Meyer on, who's a senior portfolio specialist at Sands. And specifically, the question we want to ask about emerging markets is, do we still want to even think about it? I mean, you know, emerging markets is this place that we always have super high optimism about. We've been hearing about the the growth in population and this huge middle class and this buying power. 
you know, and then we look back and the returns have been, eh, you know, you might better off staying domestic. So we asked him the hard questions like, should we even care about emerging markets at this particular point? And then kind of, so that's what this episode's about. It's about asking kind of some challenging questions to some really, really intelligent people. So we're, we're thrilled to have him on the show. Yeah, I think what I was reminded of was kind of the, it's it's a basic fundamental tenet of thinking about growth and where growth comes from. And I think to a you know, zooming way out, you buy growth because you believe in optimism. You believe in the human species finding new mousetraps and making existing mousetraps more effective. So, you know, we talked about like the, the biotech space and how like medical outcomes are vastly better than they were, you know, a couple decades ago, or the emergence of AI and how the technology that's going to be used to, to house and, and fuel all that. And then the emergence of tech and financial services, how there's a lot of these companies that are kind of quasi commercially driven, just a good reminder of all that stuff. And coming from really smart guys that this is all they do. All they do is growth. There's some great stories in here about the depth of their research when they investigating these companies. Just a great interview, all around interview. That's not, not product centric, but just kind of space centric. Yeah. We got and talked about some really, really interesting thematics, which I don't know about you, Kurt, but I just get really revved up uh, when, I, when I talk to these guys. So really excited for everybody to hear this conversation. Yep. So when we get back, we will get to our interview with Sands Capital. So make sure you like uh, this episode's hit subscribe, hit download, send to a friend, send any questions, comments, or concerns to Steve side at the whole truth at touchdownfunds.com. <laughs> so without any additional fodder, here's our interview with Sands Capital. All right. Well, we are so excited to have a few of the folks from Sands Capital joining us today. And, and Tom, we'll get to you in a second. And, and we have met and we've had some, been on some client calls and we've met. But Jack, you are kind of a new face, at least for me, at Sands. So uh, I, we always feel like people do a better job at introducing themselves than, than we do. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and background? Sure. So thanks for having me, Kurt. Uh, my name is Jack Mayer. I'm a senior manager and I'm a head of the portfolio specialist team here at Sands Capital. And so what my team is really tasked with is serving as a connection point between the PM teams, our client relations teams, and our marketing groups. And so we're positioned sort of as these internal subject matter experts on the portfolios. And so we have a dual mandate with that positioning in terms of supporting client retention and business development, but also supporting the PMs so they can focus on what they do best in finding companies and managing portfolios. Uh, I've been at Sands Capital since 2016, and my prior experience was on the other side of the table at uh, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Gotcha. Um, and for those that are not familiar, could you kind of give us an overview of, of Sands as a firm? Yeah, happy to. And so uh, Sands Capital is an independent staff-owned investment management shop uh, based right outside of DC. And we are exclusively focused on investing in growth equities. And so we opened our doors in 1992. And back then, we focused solely on US large cap public growth equities. But we've since taken our philosophy and approach, and we've applied it across growth stages. So everything from venture capital uh, to public equity as well as geography. So everything from US to emerging markets. 
Yeah, right outside of DC. Their offices are absolutely amazing. I love visiting it. Although I will tell you what's a little distracting because I was there not long ago. The, the whole being in DC thing is 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 major. Like there's helicopters that are flying by. You see the snipers on the top of roofs. It's like it's a different world. The where you guys monument, are. Yeah. yeah, the whole thing is like it, it's just it's, hanging uh, out by the Potomac. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's a trip. So, um, Talk about your process, uh, if you would, at a high level, and then follow that up with, you know, the investment edge. So, you know, when you're investing in an active manager, it's really important to know, like, what is it that they actually have that gives them an edge relative to the market? So if you could talk about those two things. Yeah. So everything at Sands Capital first starts with our mission, and that's simply to add value and enhance the wealth of our clients with prudence over time. Uh, But what does that mean in practical terms? That means what we're really trying to achieve is outperformance over rolling long-term periods. And when you think about our philosophy, what we've observed over long-term periods is three key things. The first is that when you have a period of five or more years, typically it's the earnings growth of the company and the business fundamentals itself that explains movements in the stock price. Second is that when you look at the market, most of the gains accrue to a select few group of businesses. And then the third thing is that in the near term, stocks fluctuate and they move around for a lot of reasons. And a lot of the time it's unrelated to the actual business operations. And so what we do is we apply our investment criteria to find, or I should say to seek businesses that are capable of sustaining above average growth for long periods of time. We then take those businesses and organize them into concentrated conviction-weighted portfolios and then we also make sure that we don't conflate volatility with risk. So to be specific, what do you think the investment edge is, to state that specifically? Yeah, so in terms of the edge, I think I would bucket it into two categories. And so from a first category, which I would classify as behavioral, um, I think it's a culture of shared ownership. It's a focus on the long-term and decision-making to support long-term endeavors. And then a focus on really what matters most, we want to get a really small number of very important things right. And one of our portfolio managers has this great saying that that he may have stolen, that much of what can be measured doesn't matter, and much of what matters can't be measured. And then, um, you know, from a process perspective, which is kind of that other bucket, um, I think that our philosophy naturally exploits three market efficiencies. Short-termism is the market seems to be myopically focused on today or this quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, The asymmetry of equity market returns. Everybody talks about the broad market, but they kind of fail to realize that the upside is unbounded while the downside is capped at 100. And then linear thinking, which is that failure to understand exponential growth potential, especially when it comes to earnings growth over time. So that's what I would classify as our edges. Well, I, I just want to comment on one of the things you said, which is that, you know, I think you said the rewards accrue to a few select really good companies over time, which is interesting. And I know we're talking about active and passive here, but that's not right now. The academic community, for example, has concluded that you should just own everything. We believe that we have our criteria and our process and our philosophy that tilts the uh, odds in our favor of finding those businesses. We certainly don't find them all of the time, but if we're right a little bit more often than not, and we're weighting our portfolios in those investment cases where we have the highest conviction, over the long term, you know, we hope that we will succeed on our mission. So Sand Select, the U.S. was first. What, what came next and in what order? 
Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, we opened our doors, as I said, in 92 with our, our main uh, select growth, which was U.S. large cap growth focused. And then in, sometime during the mid aughts, we found that we were increasingly doing research overseas to both uh, examine the opportunities for our domestic companies, for our U.S. companies that were had overseas operations, uh, as well as their competition. And what we found was that there was an increasing number of these ex-U.S. businesses that met our criteria and enough so that we could create a portfolio that kind of mirrored the characteristics that we wanted in our, our select growth portfolio. And so uh, we launched our global growth strategy uh, in 2008 and continued to kind of apply that thinking uh, to other opportunity sets in the public equity space. And so uh, we launched that global strategy, then our emerging markets growth strategy. We now have an ex-US uh, strategy. And then we've also taken that same kind of thoughtful expansion approach in terms of growth stage. And now we have uh, venture capital and growth equity strategies as well. Now, now, while each of those has a different opportunity set, uh, I would highlight that they all are kind of underpinned by the same principles, philosophy, and team. And they're all truly complementary in terms of just helping us broaden our perspective about the ecosystem, competition, opportunities, et cetera. That's great. Let's transition to Tom now. So Tom, jump on in. We want to start to talk about the select growth strategy, which is you know predominantly large growth. Introduce yourself, and then we're going to start firing some questions about the space, which has been, you know, kind of a roller coaster, if you would, in the last call it ten years. Yeah, it's a nice little euphemism there. The, uh, the yeah. So I joined Sands Capital in two thousand five. Um, so over the last eighteen years, I've spent some time as a tech analyst, uh, tech PM, and now. Uh, co-PM on select growth. And yeah, so I cut my teeth really learning our process in the, in the tech sector, how to think differently about companies, how to take that long-term perspective. And ultimately, I've just sort of expanded, you know, from a narrow purview on, say, internet companies into, you know, into broader tech and, and now, you know, the larger U.S. market. And so just a quick overview of select growth. What does it look, what does the portfolio look like? You know, kind of how do you guys approach that, that, uh, that portfolio? Yeah, so if you look at select growth, so I mean, as as Jack said, that's the original strategy of Sands Capital, and the you know the the view is that we want to own the twenty five to thirty best growth franchises, and we select them via our six criteria, and we want to take a long term focus as business owners uh, rather than you know than paper traders or stock traders. So we're trying to think about what is the business today, where will it be you know five and ten years from now, and how is that a differentiated view than than what others are seeing when they, they look at those same companies. And we want to be concentrated in the very best ideas. So we, you know, 25 to 30 gives you some diversity of drivers and company types, but we're not selling good ideas to buy lesser ideas. Excellent. Yeah. And so let's reflect a little bit on the growth space. You know, we're recording this at the beginning of 2023. Uh, some of the growth names have started to come back a little bit this year, but obviously the last 18 months with rising rates has just been, you know, a, a crazy environment. And, and an extreme environment. But having said that, you know, I look back over my career, there have been a few of these, you know, 2008 and then growth dominates. And then you have the 15, 16 era where high growth is getting smacked down. And then of course, you know, so it, it seems to go in these, what I would call pretty extreme cycles lately where it's all growth and then growth gets punished and then it's all growth again. And I, I guess I wonder how you guys think about that. Um, what you think about when we go through these periods? 
Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, there are cycles to the, the broader market backdrop. And, you know, this is the most pronounced period, but we've been through a lot of periods like this before. And, you know, the, the downside in growth usually comes when, you know, the macro fears are overriding fundamentals and durations are dramatically shortening. And, you know, this has been a pretty extreme, you know, version of that when, when interest rates go from, you know, sort of, you know, go up eight, nine hundred uh, percent from sort of near zero to, to where they are today. So, but if we think about, you know, what happens through these cycles, our, our focus is, is, again, back to that, what's our process, our six criteria, and, and being selective, and focusing on the, you know, concentrating the best ideas, and staying calm, and always forward-looking, as we think about where the opportunities are, and, and ultimately, you know, if you look over long, long periods of time, you know, the fundamentals do shine through, the earnings growth drives, you know, our long-term returns, uh, you know, fluctuations and multiples can have pretty dramatic you know, they can adjust much faster in the shorter periods of time. But over the long run, it's really, you know, those sustainable companies proving proving out their earnings that drives the value. I know you guys are pretty calm because you're long term, but on the PM team, be honest, there's got to be days where you're just like, what is this? Like when this this company that's doing really well and the market is just absolutely annihilating it for, re, for I don't know, for interest rates or whatever, or for short termism, like, what do you guys say to each other? Is it really like, a, no, we're good? Oh, I mean, it's we're definitely good. not. It's definitely not fun getting kicked in the teeth every day, uh, <laughs> and that's that's what the last year has uh, been a lot of. And you know, I mean, again, it, it's having the conviction in your process to not get you know off your game when that yeah. when that happens. Like, I mean, it's it's it, there's no way two ways around it. It's not fun. I mean, you certainly don't go through periods of this where you know you don't see things that that you got wrong and that you know things you could have done better. But you know, having the conviction and the belief that the core of what we do makes a lot of sense, and we just keep you know applying our process, and we'll come through on the other side. So I have a story. I started at Touchstone in 2017, which I think prior to the last 12 to 18 months, that 14 to 16 was kind of a a tougher spot for for Sands. And I remember thinking, you know, what have I gotten myself into? This is you know one of one of the top funds that we talk about, and then. Proceeded the next several years to be proven wrong time and time again as it kind of had a, um, a, a nice run there. But what I saw then and what I see now is people tend to time this thing awfully, <laughs> right? Because because there is volatility uh, and we could talk about the, the behavioral aspect of investing, but it's it seems like something like this, people really get wrong. And I, I'm just curious because you deal with such a wide swath of clientele. Do, do you see that on the institutional side and some of your foundations as you do in the retail side? Yeah. So, I mean, what you're describing is is natural human psychology. We all like feeling smart and what's working feels smart. And you, you get a lot of trend following behavior. And ultimately, that's a lot of what causes the, the cycles we were talking about, about earlier. You know, the, the key is to step back and recognize that and and then have the conviction in a process to stick through it through, through those periods. And so, you know, the institutional clients, the ones that are a good match for us, understand, you know, where we play in the markets and how these cycles work. And they understand that you know, there are there are these cycles to take advantage of. And if you have the conviction in the manager, just as we have the conviction in our individual portfolio companies, then you don't overreact and get put off your game at the absolute worst time or you know, trend follow and and make mistakes at the the worst time. So you know, there's the natural idea of rebalancing, and we 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 are a role in a larger asset allocation, and it makes sense when when things are going well, we'll see rebalancing away, and when things are going poorly, that's the opportunity, and and there's rebalancing towards us. 
I'm curious what you would say. I mean, I don't know what the cocktail parties are, are like in the DC area, uh, but you know, <laughs> would you um, when you talk to folks that are not clients and someone would question, you know, why don't you just index this space? You know, what? How would you think about answering that? Yeah, well, <laughs> the nice part about being in DC is that uh, that you know very little of the cocktail conversation is around you know work, so you get a little bit of break. I'm about yeah. you probably get too much too much politics too on much the politics, other hand. I'm sure. Yeah. So maybe I'd rather talk investing. The uh, the you know, but I think to your your point around uh, indexing. So yeah, I mean indexing is the you know the way to take you know accountability out of investing. If you own the index. You know, you're going to do a little bit worse in the index with your fees, but you're never going to be an outlier. You're never going to be better. You're never going to be worse. And so it, it you know, it, it really, you know, it's kind of a, a CYA uh, approach. And again, it, it can work pretty well. And it's especially going back to that idea of the worst thing you can do. And I think there's been studies of this, you know, the average mutual fund, you know, underperforms by, by some amount, but the average mutual fund investor underperforms by a far, far greater degree. Right. Yeah. And that's because, you know they're trend following. They're buying high, uh, selling low, and it and it comes back to that that lack of of conviction in what's going on. Um, you know indexes you know don't change. They are going to be be what they are. So it is a good way to control the psychology and to you know for the layperson again to not get caught up in hype cycles or get you know pushed out when there when there's fear. But we think if we by taking an active approach. You know, we can do better than the index. We can find better companies. We can find the opportunities. We can use that long-term perspective uh, that the market is often lacking, and especially at, at times like like this, where there's a lot of you know fears and uncertainties that really shortens timeframes. And you know, that's to our advantage. And if you look at you know, the index has done very well. I mean, I, I believe it's you know, I don't know exactly where it is, but it's been you know into the twentieth percentile of you know the universe for a long, long, long time. And if you look at the you know how it's done that, well, it's gotten even more concentrated. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I think that's a great point of how concentrated the index has actually gotten. It's almost active at this point in terms of weights. Um, yeah, but I think it got all, all the way up to about 50% here. Isn't that crazy? Um, I mean, and then yeah. now it's back down to like 43. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I mean, it's sort of like two concentrated portfolios. I think our, our top 10 is usually in the 55 to 60 range. And <laughs> when the index was at 50, it's, you know, that's, that's, you know, pretty notable. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah, and clearly you haven't seen anything else like that where it was that concentrated in your No, history? I think, that, you know, I think, you know, when you do get very strong markets, often, you know, at the index level, that is because large weights are performing. So yeah. you tend to see the concentration increase, you know, towards the end of, you know, of bull markets. Um, but I believe you know, the, the, this was the, the most, con- I mean, it's certainly the most concentrated we've seen in the last 20 years. The last time it was approaching these levels would have been the, the late 2000s. Got it. Um, this is going to seem like a value manager question because you always we talk about value traps and things like that. How do you avoid the trap, again, over the last 18 months where these stocks are correcting aggressively and going, you know, I really like this company at, I'm making up the number 100. It just got its valuation crushed in half. Yeah, when when stock prices are going down, um, usually there's you know usually it's not a vacuum. Usually there's some sort of news. Usually something bad has happened, right? And it gets back to that idea of have you done your homework and do you have conviction that you actually know what you know the business is and what's happening to it in order to you know stay the course and you know retain that confidence. And if you don't, you will always get forced out at the bottom when the market is telling you you're wrong. Now the flip side, when the market's telling you you're wrong, you better darn know why you're right. Um, and that gets back again to the the research we're doing, the depth of it, the the long term you know focus we have. But but really, you know, our analysts are experts in their space. You know, we don't meet 
other folks in, in the industry who know our companies and our industries better than us. And that, again, that gives you the conviction that you know what's happening and understand these changes and can put them in context. Now, certainly, you know, you don't want to put blinders on and just say, oh, the stock's down. You know, I loved it. You know, at 150 is even better. I'll, you know, triple down. I mean, bad things do happen. And so that's what we did systematically to make sure that we weren't just anchoring to, to views we had when the, when the world's changed. So we went back through and yeah, studied you know the unit economics and why exactly do we believe it and, and looked again at the the mark you know why do we have confidence in the market growth penetration for various companies has the competitive landscape changed what are the managements doing as far as operational discipline were they too lax are they adjusting um, and that the whole re-underwriting process again goes back to having the confidence to say yeah this is painful you know the market is certainly doubting us one of the things. I've been most impressed with Sands over the years are the anecdotes about the depth of research. So I've heard stories about, you know, interviewing in customers to see what their experience is with the company or um, interviewing like the entire supply chains, you know, suppliers to, to larger companies to kind of understand their, their relationship and business dynamics with it. I, I wonder, and, and Jack, maybe you could chime in also, but what are, what are some of your like favorite anecdotes when it, when you talk about depth of research that you would point to it's rarely when you you know you have a conversation that it's just like oh this was you know the you know I hit the aha just from this it's really the mosaic you're you're putting together but you know I was talking with another colleague this morning about some consumer panels we were doing with uh, with buyers in in various Latin, you know regions of Brazil and and the difference you were seeing in one region versus the other and how that affected the competitive landscape of the companies based on the services that were available in those individual companies and and then how we could generalize that to what does this mean for the signal on, on competitive advantage? Yeah, I'm nerding out right now, so I'm going to go down this path a little bit with you if you don't mind. Um, how do you dedicate your time? I mean, here you are, you got an enormous team. Like the depth of your team, I think I haven't. I haven't seen matched in any other strategy I've come across, but you're, you're investing globally. So you could be running around to every different part of the globe researching. So is it simply like a company specific? We're interested in this. We think everything makes sense. Now we got to go on the ground and actually start to do on the ground research. How do you direct your time in that kind of research? Yeah. So I mean, as with most, most things at Sands Capital, it comes back to our six investment criteria. So leadership, Sustainable above average growth, leadership in a promising business space, significant competitive advantage, clear mission value added focus, which is really speaking to management, financial strength, and rational valuation. So if we think about you know where are we spending our time, usually the you know the first three to four of them are where you're going to hit. Well, we we talk about what matters or the linchpin of an investment case. So it might be something about how is this market going to develop? How is our view on the competition a little different? And how is the moat stronger, wider uh, than than you know everyone else thinks? Or how is something changing that isn't perceived today? Say an evolution from you know on-premise software to software as a service, and how leadership today doesn't reflect leadership to the future. So what you know as we start with that criteria, usually again you'll find out, you know, you know, our companies, you know, meet our, all six of the criteria, but there's a differentiated view around one or two of them that we can really flesh out. And once you identify that's what you need to answer, you know, that's how the time is spent. So if it is building conviction that the market adoption will happen, that's where we'll spend our time. If it's proving that the, you know, the market adoption, we've got no real you know, questions about, but can they hold a competitive advantage as that market develops? Or does it just end up being as capital flows in, it gets competed away, we'll spend our time uh, on that competitive advantage. So it's really, again, the, taking the six criteria and then knowing what matters within them and then building a specific view around, you know, that linchpin for the case. 
Got it. And and there's sometimes the view, like with large cap equities specifically, that it's hard to to maybe have a different case than what is, you know, because so many people are covering these companies versus like, you know, some company that's in the emerging markets, which may be less covered. Is that a fair observation or is that not? In other words, is can you find these different types of viewpoints in large cap just as easy as you can when you go overseas? Yeah, so there's no there's no no doubt there's there are more people looking at the larger cap companies, right? Uh, you know, you just look at you know how many analysts cover them on the sell side, and it'll be far greater, you know, for a, a large cap company than it will be for a small cap or some something more obscure. Um, and that's where it gets back to the structural advantages that that Jack was was pointing out. So it's not so much that no one else is looking at it, but they're looking at it differently. And if we, you know, by looking at the long long term. We are by nature setting ourselves up to have a contrarian view because most of the market's looking very short term. So it's if we can focus yeah. on what's happening five years from now and how's that going to shake out, then you know we're playing a different game than the vast majority of people looking at those companies that are trying to figure out what's going to happen with earnings over the next six to twelve months. And so it's it you know it's just you know, playing that different game and then being able to think about where are we going over the long term as opposed to trying to compete with everyone on the on the short term. Let's talk about interest rates for a second, if you can. As you mentioned, the tightening cycle was very, very fast, and in some ways, the most tight, the most like the quickest tightening cycle and the most robust that we've seen almost ever, but certainly in decades. And so, with that, I've heard from from our clients, our prospects, our friends. You know, hey, these growth companies—they were really expensive. A lot of that had to do with low rates that were elevating their multiples. This this period just bringing them back to a rational valuation, it seemed pretty harsh to me. Like a couple hundred basis points, and all of a sudden these valuations almost went in half. Do you view the the, the collapse in multiples as rational, giving interest rates? I, I know you don't invest based on interest rates, but I'm curious how you guys view that. Yeah. So if you go back to that, you know, that broader cycle idea. Obviously, when rates are low. You know that pushes asset prices up. The discounts rates lower, and so multiples are higher. And we got to a level that was, you know, pretty extreme relative to the history of interest rates, and thus the the discount rates. So rates go up. They, you know, they're normalized. It happened in a very compressed period of time, but you're normalizing the the discount rates for for assets, and you'd expect them to come in. However, when you do it over a very compressed time period, it's the longer duration assets that take more of the hit. So if you think about the more the value is in the out years and you know further out in the DCF rather than near term, so the change in the discount rate affects it because you're discounting it for for a longer period of time. But that gets overdone because you add it with just it, it's not just mechanical like that, you also add that uncertainty level. And and yeah. where again where we see so if you look right now the debate is well the you know the market multiple is you know back to averages but it's not it's not obviously cheap. We're not at seven times earnings for the S&P like we were in you know various points in the in the 70s but you know we look at our companies what 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 that's missing is is really the understanding of what are they showing today versus what are they showing in 5 years and going back to that idea of the companies that are investing for the future that are under earning today using just you know the you know shortening the time horizon and looking at you know the next one or two years is overly punitive because that company, what they're doing today is investing for the future and what they'll be doing five years from now is harvesting that future. And, and that's, where, that's where if we look at our portfolio today, you know, we're really excited about the valuations. They've been reset. You know, the, the companies are performing. We think we're in this you know, separation phase where you're sort of, you know, the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater and now we'll be you know, seeing 
you know, where are the durable franchises? Where are the companies that do adapt to the new world that aren't just easy money ideas, but have sustainable growth, have real competitive advantages, have margins? And, you know, that's not immediately apparent today. But if we are, if our companies develop as we think they will, yeah, that PE in five years looks very, very different than the PE right now. And they're, they're, you know, great opportunities. That is really, really interesting. Um, I want to ask you about some other, I don't want to say competitors, but, you know, Sometimes people view the select growth particularly as more an aggressive growth strategy that sometimes can be compared with, you know, innovation strategies. There's a couple of popular ones that have taken on, you know, we all know who's come up in the marketplace. How are you similar than some of those uh, innovation strategies? Would you call yourself aggressive growth or innovation strategies? And how are you different? Do you, hopefully you understand my question yeah. here. Yeah. So, I mean, so that, you know, that is you know, how, you know, from the, the external perspective, you know, managers and companies are sort of put in a, a style box, so to speak. You know, we don't, you know, that's not the starting point for us. We're not setting out to, you know, you know be quote unquote aggressive or, or own a, a certain, you know, type of, of company. What we're looking for is, is, again, where are the opportunities on a three and five year basis where the, the market is not optimistic enough and doesn't understand. And as you know, our view on the six, 12 months might not be different, but as you get three, four, five years from now, you'll see that the results are coming in much better than expected. And the stock prices rise to those higher earnings. And that, that arbitrage of the, the results over the longer time horizon is, is the value created. If we think about, you know, uh, so us versus other, you know, uh, other investors. So if we think about that five-year period, you know there are there are companies that can defy the fade, and that's how they can win over the the five year period. You know, again, it, the individual company matters more. You can't. You know, we don't. If you own, if you think thematically and don't do the depth on the companies, you know, there'll be there'll be plenty of them that don't really live up to the hype. Whereas if you start with the company and its individual prospects, and then recognize the theme that it's in, that helps give you conviction and that it's inevitable and going to happen. Again, you can have the confidence to own much bigger weights, own them for the long term, and and again, be, be comfortable with that, that long-term view. Yeah, that's great. Last question on select. And then we're going to turn overseas if you guys don't mind. Um, as we sit here beginning of 2023 in the large growth space and, or even go down cap, if you'd like, what gets you most excited? You mentioned a couple of things just there, but what really, really gets you excited when you look into the future about, about growth investing right now? You mentioned cloud computing. You mentioned uh, you know some of the things in biotech. Are those are the areas that are getting you really excited? You know, you hear people talking about uh, AI and and all these things. Like, what are you guys most excited about thematically as a firm right now? Yeah. So if you look look thematically, so some of some of the themes you know that we're exposed to, you know, have been going on, and they're just again they're just long term secular trends. So take software as a service. Uh, that's one of the highest conviction trends. We're actually excited right now that a lot of the you know, there is some slowdown in the software space and, and you know, a lot of folks are, oh my gosh, maybe it's not secular anymore. Maybe it's cyclical. Uh, maybe you know, it's more penetrated. Maybe you're you know, closer to the end. And you know, we sit back and look. You know, we're about 10 years into cloud computing. We're about 15% penetrated. We've got a long, long, long way to go. So the worse oh, the macro God. fears get, the, the better we feel about that long-term view. But one of the interesting things is sort of the evolution within that trend. So if we look at our, our exposure and software over the years, you know, we started with just doing what was what was old software did did be, you know better so you went from software you you know bought in a disk or you've kind of downloaded on a server and you ran servers and you moved to you know get in as a service and that's just a better way to consume it but it was the same thing you were doing before now we're actually if you look at 
what's happening in something like cloud analytics, you're doing things that you just couldn't do before. You're going from looking at batch processes and analyzing data, you know, from 30 day lag to real time decision making driven off your off the data you're looking at. So it's that where the trend of cloud computing is the same, but where the the leading edge of it and where the excitement is, is, is evolving. So that's one that again, we're just in the, you know, the heart of that, you know, something like, uh, Artificial intelligence, you know, that that's one where there's certainly a lot of buzz, you know, chat GPT is really taking the world by storm and kind of open people's eyes to it. You know, what we find with those is, again, that's where you've, you've really got to be the most selective. You know, there can be a lot of hype uh, around you yeah. know, an early stage trend like that. And, you know, the, the focus is on finding the sustainable company that will drive that. So, yeah, we have an investment that that's very levered to that directly. But I think you're, you're still a ways away from seeing that flow into just general business. And, and uh, you know, I guess I'd put that as earlier stage. It's sort of the inkling of the idea as opposed to the, you know, the heart of the adoption. Um, and then if, if you go into... You know, some of the other sectors where we're invested in, you know, I think a lot of the opportunities are really the intersection of spaces. So if you look at in the financials world, the intersection of technology and financial services, that's creating a lot of opportunities. And, and, and for example, you see software companies that are monetizing through payments, right? So by embedding payments, they're creating a better service. And it's that intersection that is really creating the value. So we've got a number of investments in that intersection of financials and, and technology. And, you know, again, that's, you know, maybe it doesn't sound like the sexiest thing, but the the way that it's changing what businesses can do, and how, you know how you interact with your your customers, and you know what's available um, is you know is pretty 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 interesting. And actually, this doesn't have anything to do with the trend, but one of the the fallouts of that that's exciting from thinking about the quality of business standpoint is you get these natural ecosystems where you you get a customer doing one thing and then you are, have a long list of other products and sort of services you can wrap around that and that again just expands the moat. So that's one where the you know that intersection is actually causing an improved business uh, model uh, in the process. And then in, in in something like life sciences. You know, there's, it's always just changing the standard of care. We have a number, we've got some investments that are looking at, you know, the genetic understanding of disease and new ways of treating diseases based on genetics. So something like gene therapy. Um, and then, and even then, I mean, if you look at, you know, we've been sequencing genes for a long time, we haven't solved all the medical problems yet. And so you've got to go to the bleeding edge of what does it mean to understand the genetic uh, underpinnings of a disease? And it's not just knowing the genes, but it's getting finer tuned of, you know, what, you know, what are different cells expressing even in the same tissue and where are those different cells located and how is the difference between what one cell is doing and the other cell doing important relative to the average of the tissue sampled. And it takes a, you know, finer degree of, uh, of analytics to get that. And, you know, we have companies that are, that are pushing that forward. That, that space, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask one follow-up question on that space because it is really exciting. There, there is the comment or the thought or maybe the hope that we're close to some breakthroughs there, you know, in areas like cancer. Is, are we, is that optimistic? Where are we on some of this in terms of close to breakthroughs? In the area of those, yes. So, you know, I think if you just look back at where we've come over the last twenty years, it's been pretty impressive in that field. I mean, you look at the, yeah. you know, the, you know, the treatments for cancer that are available today. You know, one area that might not be close to home unless you've got friends or family members, but genetic diseases—that's an area where you know, if you look at what was available for a lot of genetic diseases, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, it was not much, you're kind of in trouble. And if you look at the way that, again, we've been able to use this technology and target these small, you know, subsets of the population of some terribly debilitating disease, there's been real progress there. Um, and, and that some of our, you know, more recent investments 
uh, that have been very successful have been companies making a difference for some you know small portion of the population that has again some some awful disease. But you know the biology and you know the the human disease is super super complex. I, I think it's pretty clear at this point there are very few, if any, silver bullets. Um, so it's just constant application of the technology, thinking of new ways uh, to adapt. And we, we've gone, we've seen, you know, the original, you know, our pharmaceutical industry was small molecules. So they were sort of man-made molecules that could target diseases. But, you know, they run into problems because those small molecules can interact with a whole lot of things you didn't intend, right? So you solve some things, but you really create a lot of side effects in others and some diseases couldn't be attacked. Then you move to proteins and proteins, you know, give you a whole other class. And, you know, we had some investments in, you know, again, in cancer companies that were, you know, incredibly successful. And now you're moving forward to, you know, something like genetics. Um, and then you continue to see, you know, there are small, you know, we had a small molecule uh, drug investment uh, a couple of years ago. So that was certainly not when small molecules were invested, but they found a way to, to change the you know, how, how you would target whether the drug would work based on the genetic understanding of the cancer. So you used a drug that on average wasn't that effective, but if you had a certain set of genes in your cancer, it was super effective. So that combination of old technology meets new technology and now you unlock something is pretty powerful. So again, it's, it's in some ways a constant grind. I don't think I would say we're on the verge of a silver bullet and, you know, solving all of these things, but you know, again, using and recombining all of these these opportunities, again, we'll just keep making progress on the medical front. I can probably ask you a million more questions, so I'm going to have to hold myself back okay. here. Um, for the audience that's listening, if you have not gone uh, read through, we produce a piece they help us with, obviously, called Why We Own, which is every company that they own and why they own them. You'll definitely see some names that you know, particularly in select growth, uh, but you'll see some interesting names that maybe you haven't really thought that much about. And, you, and it, it's just a great, great piece to go through. Well, Tom, I really, really want to thank you for for uh, for coming on, for sharing these insights, for doing what you do. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to happy to chat. This is great. All right, Jack. So we're going to transition to you now. You OK to jump into emerging markets a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. OK, so. um you know, again, with this podcast, we, we weren't necessarily going into like, hey, you know, this is SANS and this is their process. I, I, I wanted to ask something spe- specific for the select growth for large growth that I wanted to talk about. We want to talk about growth investing and the volatility and some of the stuff that's happened there. With emerging markets, I, I do want to reflect on this on the space because it's a space that we always – you know, seems really exciting. You know, we've been talking about population growth and and look at what's, you know, what's happening with the emergence of the middle class for a really, really long time. Seems great. And yet when you look back at how the space is actually done and performed, um, it's lagged for so long, <laughs> you know, it's just been a long time. So, so I guess the question is in your mind, as we sit here today, why do you want to own EM? Like, like why now, why shouldn't you be frustrated that it hasn't done better as a space? Yeah. Um, you know, I have to agree with you. The returns for emerging market equities haven't been anywhere near what you could get elsewhere in the world. And so if I look at the emerging market, MSCI emerging markets index over the past decade, it's been about 2% a year that compares to the U S which was about 10% a year and even 5% a year for developed X U S. And so definitely get why investors would even question why bother. But once you look beneath the surface and beyond those kind of index level returns, you definitely see that there's some diamonds in the rough. So when you look at the past decade, yes, on a cumulative basis, the index was maybe 20%. By my count, there were 80 companies that returned over 200%. And so I don't 
Yeah, and so I, I don't think that the answer is to swear off the asset class completely, uh, but instead to really take a more selective approach to try to find those special businesses and avoid the others that are kind of holding you back. Okay. Well, yeah. So, 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 so good points there. I do think there, you know, I agree. There's definitely some really exciting specific companies. And I think that's, that's an amazing way to think about it. Um, Again, thinking and reflecting on the space, the other thing that tends to be not troubling, but it's hard to, that I'm trying to wrap my head around is theoretically you own international equities for potential for return enhancement, but but also diversification. That may be even more important uh, over time. And yet when we go through these periods, you think about last year, you think about 2008, you know, they tend to be correlated on the way down. So I, I guess the question is, when do you, do you think this correlation is going to break both on the upside where they trade less like each other and, and what's going to cause that? So I definitely think that when you introduce an emerging market equity allocation to a portfolio, uh, diversification can be a benefit, but I don't think that's the main reason to own EM equities. You know, at the end of the day, there's still stocks and all stocks are going to have some degree of correlation, uh, especially during a risk-off environment when everybody is just going to kind of more safe havens. But what they do offer that's different, importantly, I think, is access to earnings growth drivers in particular that you're not going to find in other geographies. And over time, that access over the long run should enhance the return of your you know, broader diversified portfolio. You know, Over the past, call it the pandemic era, we've certainly been in a more macro-driven environment. And Tom mentioned index concentration that we're seeing in the US. We're certainly beginning to see uh, elements of that in the emerging market space as well, especially on a country basis. And so I don't know what's going to kind of change this macro market, um, but I do know over time, earnings growth is going to likely determine who the winners are as it has in the past. And so that's where that selectivity is really going to be key, um, especially for long-term investors. So it's tough to talk about this space without talking about probably a couple of the behemoths in the space. And you actually answer part of that right there, because I, you know, I, I think it's worth noting, like talking about a country like China and an EM in the same breath is not saying, oh, we love China. I think what you're suggesting is, are there a few businesses that fit your criteria and, and fit what you're looking for? But that doesn't mean you're devoid of opinions about China or some thoughts about it as a country and its economic development and where the opportunities are. Can you share those with us? Like what kind of what's your macro of China? Absolutely. Um, and so I would say that, you know, of course, we're bottom up fundamental investors, but we certainly do have views about different geographies. And that doesn't form the attractiveness of a business space and whether or not it's going to be more supportive of earnings growth. And you can't talk about emerging market equities without talking about the elephant or, or dragon in the room, which is China. <laughs> um, you I know, see today, what you did there. <laughs> Today, it's about a third of the index. Um, it was as high as maybe 40%, you know, could be higher if you include A shares and, um, and Hong Kong shares as well. But we at Sands Capital in our emerging markets strategy uh, maintain an underweight to China. And that's for the simple reason that we find it to be a less attractive operating environment for businesses. Uh, the geopolitical and regulatory situation, uh, especially over the past two to three years has just made it increasingly difficult for a lot of businesses that traditionally met our criteria to make their own weather. 
But that said, going to my earlier point, it's still a massive part of the opportunity set. You can't just right. completely sidestep it. And so what we've done in our portfolio is seek to maintain some exposure, but through businesses that are either isolated from these exogenous issues or that are on the right side of policy. And so to give some examples, kind of um, businesses that might be more isolated, you know, these tend to be companies that are focused on domestic demand. Uh, so whether it's a, a sportswear manufacturer or a food retailer that's really focusing on Chinese consumers, you know, those are areas that, that we found some criteria meeting opportunities. And then in terms of the right side of, of policy, you know, the government has been very clear that they're committed to promoting life sciences innovation. And so um, we found a couple contract service providers uh, in the space that, that we also think uh, meet our criteria as well. Uh, so I'm not sure what animal would be the, the the marker for india but can we talk about india like, it seems like everyone's talking about india these days like from all like the the, the big wires the sell side analysts you're seeing articles in barons all the time it seems like everyone's going bananas for which is probably you know not the right moniker for um from india but what <laughs> what is going on there I'm going to butcher this quote, but the great Jim Grant says something like, um, successful investing is about having everyone agree with you later. And I'd like to point out that we've long had a big exposure to India in our portfolios. But, um, you know, all of the secular tailwinds that we talk about, about liking an EM, in India, they're in one place and in a place that has over a billion people. And so these are things like upward mobility, uh, the formalization and consolidation of industry, digitalization, pro-growth reforms. And so those are kind of the structural drivers. But then you're also getting this near-term tailwind uh, with supply chain reconstitution away from China, which might be driving a new CapEx cycle. And so there's a lot of things to like about the country. That said, to your point, people have seemed to kind of catch on to this. And so when you look at kind of the broader base indexes, uh, the valuation stout. You know, this is not really a secret. And so, uh, you know, for, for investors looking to you know, find opportunities in the space, you know, like I've been saying, selectivity is really warranted. And some of the areas that we found opportunities include private sector banks and financial service providers, uh, quick service restaurants, and branded consumer goods. And these are businesses that have their earnings growth underpinned by some of those more structural drivers uh, that I was mentioning earlier. So correct me if I'm wrong, but but those two countries, China and India, I mean, they're a good 40, 50% of bench. But is that is that the range? Uh, about I'd say yeah, that's that's about right. But there's a lot of other countries, so let's can we show some love to some other countries? What where are some other green shoots coming from outside of those two? Yeah, so we have a good amount of exposure uh, in Latin America as well. Um, but there are some new areas that we've begun researching over the past twelve and eighteen months that are pretty excited that you might not necessarily find huge exposures in the index. And so you know, as I mentioned, we're not necessarily top down investors you know, macro-driven investors, but we're increasingly finding businesses that might meet our criteria um, kind of in the Middle East or Gulf region. And there you have what is a more constructive macro outlook as government policies are aiming to diversify those economies away from hydrocarbons. And that's kind of giving rise to entire new industries and business spaces, and in some cases, businesses um, that just weren't really viable before. Uh, and, and another trend that we're kind of watching, um, you know, we're not alone in this, but the reorganization of supply chains could be a really big deal. And it's making geographies and industries within geographies attractive for the first time for, for a lot of growth investors. And so to give you one example, um, you know, we've been looking at uh, some opportunities in the industrial real estate space in Mexico. 
uh, because, you know, in some cases it's directly related to more manufacturing activity as companies seek to relocate their supply chains for nearshoring purposes. And so um, that's an ex another example of something that you might not necessarily find in a big way in the index, but might be an opportunity, you know, looking, looking ahead. That's great. And maybe what we'll do is we'll close, you know, you talked about some of the places you're excited out from a geographic perspective. What about thematics? Like you mentioned a few things, but like, as you look across the EM space, what are some of the things that you guys are really excited about? I think one of the biggest ones has to be adoption of financial services and financial service digitalization. And so when we first started our dedicated EM strategy a decade ago, our underweight to the financial services sector was a, the largest underweight in the portfolio. There was mm. just not stuff we would own that met our criteria. If you fast forward to today, it's our largest absolute weight. And so what yeah. you have what you have in this space is, you know, most of the world's unbanked and underbanked population is found in emerging markets. And today there's now increasing government support to drive adoption of different financial services products. Uh, there's new business models that are enabling access and removing frictions that previously existed. And this is happening throughout the emerging world, whether it's Southeast Asia, Central Asia, India, Latin America. And so um, the types of businesses that we're finding, you know, some of them are domestic kind of local champions and others are more regional players. Others are kind of layering financial services into super apps and, you know, adjacent e-commerce businesses to kind of help drive adoption that way. Um, but it's it's an exciting theme. I think it's one that's very important for emerging markets. Uh, it's going to drive more broad-based economic activity. And not only should it really benefit those select few businesses kind of driving the shift, but it's also driving a, a net benefit to society by bringing in people and, and driving financial inclusion. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting change. I was noticing that because I was going through top holdings the other day with uh, with a with a client of ours, and they're like, "Yeah, you guys have a lot of financials that are creeping up." So it's a, it is kind of interesting and something that that we haven't seen from you guys in the past. Well, Jack. Uh, want to say huge thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks to Tom as well, Tom Trentman. Um, it was really, really good to hear your perspective on on two things that – two areas that I think we're hearing a lot from our clients that are really thinking through, which is what to, how to think about growth and then also internationally, like what makes sense, what to be excited about. I mean, I, all things are like top of mind. So thanks so much for coming on the show, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity. We will be right back shortly with our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to our Costanza Corner, where we like to leave on a high note. Kurt, you're up. Could you have said that any more low energy? We like <laughs> was that to low energy? end on a high note. Was I bad? <laughs> you know, it sounded very calm and collected to me, but I guess it's just a low energy. Okay, I'll try to get revved up. Okay, I'm getting fired up. Go ahead. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> okay, so a little bit of a twofer. So I'm going to stick in the vein of us finding just funny George Costanza quotes. But first, a personal update that I think is a high note. So I told you how like I'm kind of I'm basically in a band now. Have I told you about this? I, I yeah, I mean, I know you've been messing around with that. You were playing on street corners and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, it's I just open up I the guitar it. case. People throw their pennies in. No. So I've been, been playing <laughs> with um, playing with this friend down the street. She sings, plays guitar, and she has another friend who's a violinist and a really awesome violinist. I, I think I've 
finally convinced them that like we're ready to take this show on the road. So I think uh, when the weather warms up a bit, we're going to do a little outside friends and family concert, get get confidence levels up and and start doing a couple little local things. So like we're we're right. We're right there. Um, open oh, open for, for band names. But right now uh, we're, th- we're thinking about the hamstrings since we all play stringed instruments. Ham- and it's kind of a story. <laughs> First time we got together, there was some pulled pork. So, you know, there's a ham reference in there. Um, so, uh, unless we have a better idea, that's what the name's going to be. I, <laughs> sounds good to me, man. Sounds totally good to me. And to end with, <laughs> I can't look at these George Stanza quotes and not crack up laughing. So, I can't um, wait. Here's the quote of the day from George Costanza. We'll end it here on a high note. Quote, I can't die with dignity. I have no dignity. I want to be the one person who doesn't die with dignity. I live my whole life in shame. Why should I die with any dignity? Oh, <laughs> uh, and so that's that's our show. Thanks for sticking with us. Until next time, add. this is the whole truth. See ya. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. DCF is an acronym for discounted cash flow which refers to a valuation method that estimates the value of an investment using its expected future cash flows. S&P 500 Index is a group of 500 widely held stocks and is commonly regarded to be representative of the large capitalization stock universe. PPE is an acronym for price-to-earnings ratio, which is the ratio for valuing a company that measures its current share price relative to its per-share earnings. MSCI Emerging Markets Index is a free float adjusted market capitalization index that is designed to measure equity market performance of emerging markets. Growth investing risk. Growth stocks may be more volatile than investing in other stocks and may underperform when value investing is in favor. U.S. trading events risk. Events in the U.S. and global financial markets, including actions taken to simulate or stabilize economic growth, may at times result in unusually high market volatility, which could negatively impact fund performance and cause it to experience illiquidity, shareholder redemptions, or other potentially adverse effects. Emerging markets and foreign investing risk. Foreign, emerging, and frontier markets securities and depository receipts, such as American depository receipts, global depository receipts, and European depository receipts, carry the associated risks of economic and political instability, market liquidity, currency volatility, and accounting standards that differ from those of U.S. markets and may offer less protection to investors. The risks associated with investing in foreign markets are magnified in emerging markets and in frontier markets due to their smaller and less developed economies. Sector risk. Investing in certain sectors may involve additional risks and may not be appropriate for all investors. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only. 
and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com slash resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.